Welcome. You're listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work Amazing Podcast. Episode 19 Psychological Understanding of Mass Shooters, Part 1. I've been studying for just under 10 years now the phenomenon of people who make the decision to arm themselves and deliberately open fire and attack unarmed civilians in public places. It was a topic I got more interested in through my work in occupational health and workplace safety. This was simply because most public spaces where mass shootings occur, be they in parks, campuses, concerts, shopping centres or in neighbourhoods, all happen to be somebody's workplace somehow. So my interest in how mass public shootings in workplaces could be reduced or even possibly prevented, developed into a wider understanding of the phenomenon of mass shooters. It's been 10 years and I feel I am now only touching below the surface of what I thought I knew. Like most areas of expertise, if you think you understand it all perfectly, then you actually really do not. I've recently come off the back of delivering a 12-week module about mass shooting to undergraduate students. Writing this module and delivering it on a weekly basis for three straight months has been a challenge, not least in it forcing me to develop what I thought my understanding was in the area. Put briefly, my main theoretical take on mass shooters was typically that mostly they were operating under the influence of extreme narcissistic personality, combined with neuroticism and instability, and an inability to cope when things went wrong in their lives, so-called triggering events. However, understanding mass shooting, why it is done, what the contributing social factors are, and how it can possibly be reduced, requires an understanding that goes beyond just that of narcissists with firearms, or the more crass nutters with guns, as I used to jokingly say. It's a deep dish that involves a whistle-stop tour of the American schooling system, weaponry and ballistics, gun laws and state regulations, mental health provision, workplace psychology, law enforcement, and an understanding of the American psyche. So strap yourselves in. The purpose of this podcast is not to recreate and to cover specific mass shooting incidents and cases in a deep forensic style. There are plenty of documentaries and accounts of individual cases available, and they give far more detail than I wish to explore here. Instead, this podcast is about trying to piece together an understanding of the variety of mass shooting types, the history and development of the phenomenon, and to see what factors are in operation when they occur. First off, if we're going to try and understand why so much mass shooting occurs, particularly in the US, we do need to take a look backwards at how firearms have always been a part of US cultural history, and how, in fact, US schools have had problems with firearms going back 300 years. As an outsider looking into the US, and being from a country that probably has the most strict firearms regulations in the world, it is sometimes too tempting to oversimplify the US mass shooting problem. When UK journalists cover mass shooting stories from the US, their reports inevitably touch upon lax gun laws or the ease of access to firearms in the US. This can give a false representation about mass shootings. 
it makes it sound like it is just the availability of guns that is the root cause of mass shootings. Yes, there are some shocking gun statistics that are sobering, such as research in 1998, which found that the paediatric firearm mortality rate is five times higher in the US than in any other industrialized country. Indeed, in 2016, the American Medical Association claimed that mass shootings had such a devastating impact that they should be declared a public health issue. And FBI figures showed that in the US in 2016 to 2017, there were 943 casualties emanating from mass shootings, with 221 people killed and 722 injuries that year alone. Despite such shocking statistics and the casual view that guns are rife in the US, there are some strict federal laws involving gun-free zones and locations where guns are prohibited. But this detail rarely makes it over to the UK in news reports about mass shootings. Yes, gun availability is partially responsible for explaining some of the mass shooting phenomenon, but it is also more complex than we may think at first. And yes, the US does have a very high firearms ownership rate. A survey in 2008 found that for every 100 US citizens, they will own on average 88 guns between them. Research in 2018 by the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence found that annually in the US, 115,000 people are shot. But gun statistics are only a small part of it. Some parts of Canada have high gun ownership levels, comparable with the US in some parts, yet there are very few mass shootings, showing that it is not just ownership and accessibility that explain mass shootings. Gun laws are not the same throughout the US, and many states vary in their gun friendliness, depending on applications of federal laws and their own state laws. Some research correlates levels of gun violence and mass shooting incidents with ratings of how gun-safe various states are, and other research often finds no such links. And like with most research in the area of mass shootings, there is much contradiction, much confusion, and sometimes counterintuitive results. Some of the best research and analysis of data suggests that mass public shootings actually account for only 1% of US gun deaths. But of course, when they occur, they can have a massively disproportionate impact on society because of the youth of the victims and the senselessness of such attacks. By their very senseless nature, mass public shootings shock and upset society because they're an unthinkable violation of the social order that we live by. We expect guilty people to meet a sticky end, and we certainly do not expect innocent people, especially children and students, to meet their demise in schools and colleges. Mass public shootings are the ultimate form of revenge against a society and what it values most. If you are angry, isolated and vengeful, there is no better way of aggrieving a community than by killing their children. Legally, there's no definition of what a mass shooter is, so many working definitions and variations are used by a variety of agencies when trying to track and collate mass shooting data. Many definitions of what constitutes a mass shooting or a mass killing are reliant upon the casualty thresholds, i.e. the number of fatalities and the number of injuries involved in any shooting incident. 
Some agencies define a mass shooting as a shooting in a public place not related to criminal activity or family homicides, whereby at least three people are injured. Some other agencies insist on four fatalities before a shooting can be declared a mass killing, while others may rely on just three fatalities. Some agencies then delineate further that the attacker can or cannot be one of the fatalities included. This can lead to massive variations in mass shooting and mass killing statistics. Mother Jones, for instance, will classify an attack as a mass shooting if it results in three fatalities, not including the shooter, whereas the Gun Violence Archive relies on four fatal or non-fatal injuries, again excluding the shooter, in order to be classified as a mass shooting. For the purposes of the podcast, I will use the following working definition of a mass shooting. A mass shooting is where an individual or individuals attempt to kill and injure a group of people, possibly a mix of those they know and do not know. The attackers are motivated by a variety of motives or sometimes a sole singular motive, with the attacker attempting to achieve maximum carnage and fatalities, resulting in at least three victim fatalities. Some initial victims may be deliberately targeted by the attacker and others may then be indiscriminately shot at. The attack may be focused in one location or it may involve multiple locations with no cooling off period occurring. A cooling off period would be when somebody returns to their normal daily pattern of activities. The primary weapons used in mass shootings will be firearms although secondary weapons may often be used and these can include things such as explosives, blades, sharps, fire or other improvised weapons. The attack may be done in conjunction with the distraction of emergency services and or controlling the victim's movements and herding them, perhaps by use of explosives or evacuation alarms in order to make the victims more viable targets. Generally speaking, and using whichever casualty threshold or definitions one chooses to, there is general agreement that mass shooting has been on the increase over the last few decades, and not only is it occurring more frequently, with periods between mass shootings getting shorter, but the number of fatalities and injuries has also increased due to advanced weaponry and ammunition developments. In 1994, there was a federal ban on the sale of new AR-15 type assault rifles. Now that ban lasted for about a decade until it ran out. But in those 10 years, it can be observed that the number of fatalities in mass shootings did reduce slightly, possibly due to it being harder for shooters to get access to AR-15 type assault rifles. However, of course, there is a burgeoning market for second-hand and used AR-15 type rifles. But that dip in fatalities showed that, that gun regulations and gun restrictions can have some impacts on spree shooting behaviours. However, a look through US schooling history reveals that firearm violence and mass shootings are not an entirely new phenomenon or the sole preserve of the 20th century. In July 1764, in Delaware, four Maverick Lenape Indians attacked the local schoolhouse, the Enoch Brown Schoolhouse. They killed the schoolmaster, Enoch Brown, a pregnant local lady, and ten of the children who were pupils there. 
The attackers did this as an extreme form of social protest against the conditions they felt that their tribe was forced to live under because of the settling individuals. As well as such extreme massacres, schoolhouses and schoolyards in the US have seen dozens of historical firearms-related incidents. In 1853, a headmaster, William Butler, was shot and killed by Mr. Matthews Wards, who was the older brother of a pupil who'd been whipped the day before by the headmaster. Interestingly, Matthews Wards was eventually acquitted of the murder after a lengthy trial in Kentucky. In 1866, a New York Times editorial ran a piece that advised parents to make sure that their children had proper-fitting pantaloons that would hold a pistol or firearm appropriately, and that such firearms were of sufficient deadly calibre if they were to be used in schools. A year later, in 1867, a pupil at a New York school brought a loaded pistol into school and shot and injured a classmate. And the following year, in 1868, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a schoolboy refused to accept a whipping from a teacher and stormed out of school. He returned to school the next day with his older brother and a friend and they then went to the house of the boy's teacher and a gun battle ensued in which the teacher was killed, the schoolboy was killed and his older brother was killed, leaving only their friend alive. In 1873, in Salisbury, Maryland, a female school teacher was walking with four pupils after school when she was approached by a stranger who shot her dead and then committed suicide at the scene himself. In 1879, in Lancaster, New York, the stable master of a school was shot at and injured by a local trespasser. In 1884, in Gainesville, Georgia, a group of drunken men forced their way into an all-girls school and began shooting up the interior of the building, although thankfully nobody was injured. In 1886, in Charleston, South Carolina, a Sunday school pupil, Emma, Emma Connolly, shot and killed a fellow pupil, John Steedley, for circulating slanderous reports about her, even though Steedley had already been whipped by Connolly's brother as punishment a few days earlier. In April, in 1887, in Watertown, New York, a student at the Potsdam Normal School committed suicide in the school by shooting himself in the head with a pistol he'd taken into school. While in June of the same year in Cleveland, Tennessee, a teacher, Irene Fans, was shot dead by the older brother of a female pupil that Miss Fans had whipped the day before. In 1889, in New Brunswick, in New Jersey, a Mr Charles Crawford was very upset over a row he'd had with a school trustee, and he fired a pistol into a crowded schoolroom just above the teacher's head. It's very clear that just from these few cases, there was a system of frontier justice operating not only in various parts of the US, but quite openly within the public schooling system. The first mass school shooting that I can trace occurred on the 28th of March in 1891 at Pearson Hall School in Liberty, Missouri. An unknown male assailant armed with a side-by-side double-barrel shotgun attacked students and staff at an exhibition event in the school. A total of 14 staff and students were injured by the shooting, but thankfully nobody was killed. The attacker escaped from the school and was never found, and no motive was ever established. 
The second mass school shooting in the US occurred within two weeks of the first incident, and it too remained shrouded in mystery, when 70-year-old James Foster shot at students in the playground of St. Mary's Parochial School in Newburgh, New York, on the 9th of April, 1891. He used a shotgun and injured 14 pupils, all of whom survived, although no motive was again established in the case. This could also be the first ever known case of a copycat mass public shooting occurring. Some contemporary statistics about firearms in the US education system can be quite shocking. Since the Columbine High School shooting in 1999, at least 145 US school children have also committed mass shootings, and since Columbine, over 215,000 children have experienced gun violence at school in one form or another. And there are 10 states in the US that do not prohibit firearms from being on their campuses. For many people, the modern age of mass shooting is seen as starting in 1966, with the infamous campus shooting by Charles Whitman at the University of Texas in Austin on the 1st of August. After murdering his mother and wife, he then went on a gun rampage at the clock tower the very next day, where he killed another 14 individuals and injured a further 31 people. However, although Whitman's rampage is generally guarded as the first campus mass shooting in US history, and seen by many as the first mass shooting in US history, we know there'd been other occasions when the attempted mass killing of students and children have been undertaken. In the next episode, we will focus more closely on the beginning of the modern age of mass shooting and the phenomenon of the copycat shooter, and also the phenomenon of the fame-seeking mass shooter. Many listeners may be surprised to hear that before Charles Whitman's Texas rampage in 1966, there had actually been another mass casualty public shooting 17 years earlier in New Jersey that saw 13 people killed. And that case is where we will begin with the next episode of this exploration of the psychological understanding of mass shooters. You've been listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work amazing podcast. I hope this has been useful. I hope this has been informative.